Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks. I'm standing in as host this week for David Rothkopf, who's absent without leave as as is so often the case, we will, we will track him down and we will drag him back to the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK for our next episode. But for today, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be hosting in his stead. And I am here in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, in my uh, husband's study, which is decorated with this hideous-looking chair, which has earned me very poor reviews on the internet from Room Raider, but I am not giving that chair back to Goodwill, no matter what anyone says. Um, We're also joined today by David Sanger of the New York Times. Where are you, David? Uh, I'm up in Vermont, just where you are in in search of, you know, your next silo to go dig into, which has two weeks, I think we would, we would want to go, go find, right? You have your pet cows with you, right? Uh, They're, they're all out in the field. Yeah. Okay, good. Excellent. Uh, uh, We have have Ryan Goodman uh, in New York City, Ryan uh, at NYU Law School and Just Security. Is that right? Is there anything else I should be saying about you? That's it. That's it. Okay. And we're also joined today by Brett McGurk. Um, Brett is currently, I believe, the Payne Distinguished Lecturer at Stanford. That's what happens when you leave the Trump administration. You have a future of pain uh, awaits you. Um, And Brett is also the former Special Presidential Envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter ISIS. So, Brett, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. So, Brett, let me, let me start with you. You mm-hmm. have worked for three different presidents. You worked for George W. Bush uh, uh, on Iraq issues earlier in your career. You worked under President Obama, and uh, you started off as special envoy, uh, anti-ISIS envoy under President Obama and the Trump administration in a sort of brief moment where clearly they weren't paying enough attention. They, they, they kept you on, uh, but then you quit. Um, Remind our listeners what what led you to resign and tell us if you feel like things have gotten any better in the Trump administration since then or, or only worse. Yeah, thanks. So, um, I mean, as you know, anybody who does these jobs, it's always very difficult and you're always dealing with very difficult issues. Um, I was in the Trump administration for two years and it's just kind of a, an uber level of kind of craziness. So, the way I've described it to people who might want to go in or still in, uh, number one, you really cannot stay above the crazy, right? The crazy catches up to everybody. So we've seen the crazy now infect our public health institutions, and it came uh, for the E-ring of the Pentagon just last week. So you can't stay above the crazy. Um, I thought maybe we could do that for a while, but after two years, it caught up with me. So what happened with, um, at the end of 2018, you know, we had a, inside the Trump administration, there's like a veneer 
of a policy process, right? It's, it feels kind of normal. There's IPCs, there's deputy committee meetings, and that comes out with policies. It might be a national security strategy document. It might be something else. Um, what ends up happening in that process is our objectives are always set kind of to the maximalist degree, whatever issue it might be, Iran, Syria, Venezuela, Russia, China, kind of maximalist objectives. So that actually happened on Syria, despite the president telling us that you're not getting any more resources in Syria. I don't want to be in Syria. Um, we kind of increased our overall objectives. Um, so just to kind of bring the story uh, to a conclusion, um, it was my job to go out with Mattis and others and sign up the coalition for at least another year in Syria. It was at the end of 2018. Um, and we asked, you know, Pompeo, Bolton, others, make sure the president signed up for this. And yeah, he was. Um, so we did that. And we went to the coalition. Everyone signed up. And then within a week, uh, President Trump said, we're actually got to leave Syria within 30 days. So, so that was, was kind of the last, the last straw, which um, Mattis left and I left. And I was planning on leaving anyway in the spring to come out here. But um, just given that, it was really impossible. It was just impossible to do the job mm. as a diplomat uh, in that chaotic environment. And it's, it's impossible for anyone to do diplomacy or speak for the United States in this, in this environment. Anything, do you, th- do you feel like anything has changed? Is, are things different now or is this just more of the same? No, I think it's worse. I mean, and there's number one, there's just, just kind of some lessons of it. There's no policy. So don't mm-hmm. pretend there's a policy because on anything, because you're always one tweet away from the president uh, mm-hmm. reversing everything. And the kind of the, the engine of the, of the foreign policy system doesn't connect to the wheel, which is the president. There's just no connection there. So there's really no policy. Um, There's no diplomacy because you really can't do diplomacy because everybody knows if you're sitting at the table with an ally or an adversary, they know that you're really not speaking for uh, the United States. Everything Mm -hmm. comes down to the president and he's very malleable and very manipulable. So I actually think all of this has gotten worse Mm. and kind of you look across the board and plus our country is obviously going through this, uh, this kind of calamitous multiple crises. So no, I don't think it's gotten better by any stretch. I, I have to say one of my, my favorite moments was when, when you resigned, President Trump tweeted something along the lines of Brett McGurk, I don't even know who he is. And of course, that's how you know in Trump world that you've really made the big time. When the president insists he has no idea who you are, you know that you've really done something good. Because <laughs> um, um, that's what he says whenever anybody does something that pisses him off. And so congratulations uh, on having Trump, forcing Trump to insist that he has no idea who you are. Um, let me let me uh, go to you, Ryan. Um, as, as Brett comments just reminded us uh, talking about going uh, going to the Middle East with with uh, Jim Mattis then Secretary of Defense um, uh, Jim Mattis recently of course came out finally uh, with what we'd all been hoping he would say for a very long time with a, a public denunciation of Donald Trump for for sowing division uh, and being being the first president in his many many years of service to the country to to actively be seeking to divide America and undermine constitutional norms. Um, He's not the only retired uh, senior military official, obviously, who's also the Secretary of Defense for Trump, but he's not the only senior military figure who's come out in recent days and issued a pretty stinging denunciation of Trump's recent actions, uh, referring particularly to his threats to send active duty military troops into American cities to 
dominate the protesters. Um, we've also seen uh, former former Chairman Dempsey, um, uh, former Chief of Staff um, Mullen, uh, and just today, uh, the current Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, although he didn't come out and say Trump is a jerk, um, he did about he came about as close to that as you can possibly say while you are still wearing the uniform of the United States. And he said, uh, appearing in a photo op with Donald Trump in Lafayette Square uh, when peaceful protesters had just been removed by tear with tear gas, et cetera, by national federalized National Guard troops and the Federal Park Police was a mistake. The military should not do anything that even gives the appearance of getting involved in domestic politics really bad move. I didn't realize that there was going to be a photo op. I thought I was just inspecting the guard troops. Um, big bad move on my part. Should we be happy about all of this? Should we be saying, yay, finally, all these highly respected former military officers are coming out and sort of speaking openly about what's wrong with Donald Trump? Uh, or is, so is this all good? Or is there, is there anything here that worries you? Um, so, you know, I agree with something that I think, Brett, you had said earlier this week that uh, somehow this was the break glass emergency moment um, for these senior, former senior military leaders to come out into the public square and make these kinds of statements and in some sense also warn some of them, uh, like uh, Secretary Mattis, warning the American public that in their view, the president really is a threat to the constitution or, or the republic. Um, and so I do think that that was important and it's in an important time and maybe we'll see more of this because people have the sense that with the coming election, um, that a free and fair choice by American, by Americans means that they should be informed about uh, these kinds of concerns that uh, weigh so heavily on people who have uh, been there um, at these where these major decisions are being made. So I think that's all uh, very good. I, I, I do think that it was also good what the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs said today, um, and the fact that he did it on video is also compelling because he surely knows that that will mean that it'll have a lot of um, mm -hmm. traffic and media and the like. But I guess there were a couple concerns I had about that, which is, um, the one concern, of course, is that, and it's a good thing in a sense, that the chairman is basically saying it was a mistake for me to be there. And in hindsight, uh, he understands that. Of course, the implication is then what, it is a mistake for the commander in chief to have put you in that place. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's positive. I think what's not as positive um, in his mea culpa is all he is saying is that it was a mistake for him to be there <laughs> at the photo op. He's not actually saying it was a mistake for the military operation to clear Americans by force in order to have the photo op. That's, and in some sense, that's another dimension of what is, was so wrong uh, on June 1st. And, you know, I've seen some public polling that even Republicans who are supportive of the president are very much turned off by that operation on June 1st. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of even support, you know, there's wide margins of Republican support for the president and his use of the military in a generic kind of question with respect to the protests. But when it comes to that operation, it's a very small percentage of Republicans and then it's a very large percentage of Americans uh, writ large who are aghast at 
what the president did. So I think that the chairman left that on the table, and understandably, because he's still in position. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a, still of a mixed bag. So David, let me, let me go to you um, uh, on two, two questions, actually. Um, one, do you think this, I mean, every time Trump does something outrageous, which he does every, you know, three and a half minutes, um, there's a surge of articles and tweets saying, oh, now he's finally gone and done it. You know, now his base can't possibly continue to support him after this totally insane thing he did. Um, finally, this will be the, this is going to be the turning point. And then nothing ever happens because his base does not care. And he just goes on and does the next outrageous thing. And we have the same conversation. Um, do you think that uh, having Mattis and Mullen and Dempsey and even sort of kind of Millie sort of kind of come out, is this going to be some sort of tipping point? I mean, I, I would like to think it is. Um, but on the other hand, I, I don't know if, Philip, if you saw this, there was a Sebastian Gorka, everybody's favorite, everybody's favorite former Trump administration official, because I'm sorry, Brett, you don't have a leather vest. Um, if you did, you might be our favorite, but you don't. Uh, at least I hope you don't. Um, Sebastian Gorka said, I'm not a Marine, but I know the Marines. And Jim Mattis is no Marine, so, which is just, you know, cringe-inducing on multiple levels. Um, but uh, that is that is that going to typify the reaction that just, you know, when you don't like what Mattis and everybody, you know, that all these people who you're calling great American heroes 10 minutes ago, suddenly they're a bunch of traitors. And, and is that going to, is that how it's going to go? Um, it may well. I mean, Mattis was, you know, mad dog and the wonderful, you know, guy with stars when he, I, m- I remember a number of us had lunch with then president elect Trump, I think the day or day after he appointed Mattis. And he, I just want to note you know, for the record that a bunch of us had lunch with president Trump. That does of, not actually imp- include me. No, uh, no, but a, a bunch of New York times, uh, Thank you. uh Thank reporters you. <laughs> and editors did. And he was just exuding. This was in his days when he just loved the generals right. and remember how many of that. And now each one of those generals has turned on him. Right. So the generals who were heroes of the Trump base at that time are now, you know, pardon the phrase, deep state members, right, who are out to undercut him. But you heard from Mattis, you heard from Kelly. You know, the only general he appointed who was still sort of stuck loyal with him is General Flynn, who's, you know, got some other issues um, running in the courts right now. But to answer your question, the polls would seem to suggest that these past two weeks have been disastrous for President Trump, um, in part because he never really addressed the underlying issues. And he thought that the way to go at this was simply to say law and order, law and order. Now, of course, what do we know about Donald Trump? That he loves law and order when he is describing um, police or National Guard or the military striking on his orders. And he knows that the uh, FBI and others are corrupt when they are going after him or some of his former appointees mm-hmm. or his friends or so forth. Um, but I think the, the bigger question is, are any of the lessons of the past couple of weeks lasting? In other words, is this decline in the polls indicating that people who were in the middle of the road, people who were um, may have voted for President Trump in the last election cycle, just can't take it in this cycle, uh, and so forth. And I think that the president 
still doesn't seem to understand that by not addressing the underlying racial issues, he appears to be not getting the message of the past few weeks. David, how can you say that? He, he said that the black people love him. That's right. As if to suggest that they are not, he said that they love MAGA and MAGA loves them, suggesting that maybe <laughs> the MAGA movement doesn't include them, right? Because he's discussing those two different groups. Um, but the second thing that's been familiar in all of this has been the way he has handled uh, this stage, this interesting stage, this truly in some ways disastrous stage of dealing with coronavirus, right? So he's just not discussing it anymore. It's all about recovery. We've now, we're now at about 116,000 Americans uh, dead. There's a pretty convincing study that uh, Harvard School of Public Health has done some estimates they've done that we will by September be at 200,000, which if you just straight line the 800 to 1,000 people that we seem to be losing every day, you know, would would take you uh, to that. Um, And that and the coronavirus task force, they're just not meeting. Sort of the, the Trump administration approach to this is we've moved on. And the evidence of that has come in the president's decision to hold another rally, one of his first in months, in in just a few uh, days, I think next week. And Vice President Pence, the head of the Coronavirus Task Force, is meeting uh, with his uh, campaign staff and and others, which was briefly up on his uh, Twitter account, which showed a group of, a large group of people unmasked, jamming into a room, talking to an unmasked vice president. And what that tells you is another version of what Brett was just describing, the disconnect between the policy of the United States, whether it's on Syria or Russia, which we could get to, or on coronavirus, and the way you actually see the president behaving. And I think finally we're getting to the point where that disconnect is beginning to register, maybe not with his base, but with, the, with those who are, whose votes are most up for grabs. Well, I had a second question for you, David, but now I can't remember what it was. So I'm going to turn to a different issue, um, which is sort of related. Can I just, can I, can yeah, I just, just please do. The, yes, absolutely. Just, just jump the, in. On the general. In. So, because living through that last week, I mean, I worked with Dempsey and Mullen and Mattis and everybody and just, just how careful they all are with their speech. Mm. And so I just thought this was totally extraordinary. And I think the, the two letters in particular, you know, Mullen, for Mullen to say, um, he doesn't question the competence and professionalism of the rank and file to carry out orders. He questions the soundness of the orders mm-hmm. that will be given. Mm-hmm. He, is, he is questioning the fitness of the president to be commander in chief. Mm-hmm. And that might be something we all think, but for that to come from the former chairman is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So that is one kind of break class uh, thing. Uh, Mattis's letter, and I, again, I resigned the same week as Mattis. I, he's out here at Stanford with me. He spoke to my class. Uh, uh, a couple quarters ago, um, and, and he was very—he had very good reasons for his repose. But you know, reading his statement, I thought to—I um, was with him in the Middle East about a year into the Trump administration in Jordan, and he kind of pulled off to the side to talk to some troops, and that's where he was recorded as saying very famously, "You know, it's your job, uh, men and women, to hold the line, right. hold the line, until the American people." can start respecting one another again, can be decent to one another again. And that was a reflection of the partisan era we're in in the country and the fact that the military um, 
it stays out of that. That's like the, the kind of, that is the real firewall. And so for him to see the military being used mm-hmm. basically by the president to say, you're on my, you're in my tribe, I think was the, was the moment for him to come out. So, but the, those two letters, Mullen questioning the fitness, I mean, basically says extraordinary. And then Mattis making this point that given this time in our country, how divided we are for the military to be seen as taking sides in the political mm-hmm. debate, that is just totally unacceptable. So I just thought that, that given how careful these guys all are with their speech, um, I thought those two statements were, were just quite extraordinary. Hey, Brett, can I ask you a question that comes, comes right out of this? So you say this was a break glass moment, and maybe it was. I read it slightly differently as a warning that the break glass moment may come around the elections. Yeah. Should the president declare that, you know, this is rigged, which is something he's said at various moments, certainly said in 2016, mm-hmm. that, um, that they were giving sort of an advance shot across the bow that, that he had made such a mistake with the military in Lafayette Park that he certainly shouldn't expect them to back him up if we got into a dispute about whether or not you respect the election. Now, maybe I was reading too much into it. It could be. I, I haven't spoken with them, but I think when I said break glass, I meant what, what trick, what caused both of them or all, I think 11 four-star generals, what caused them to come out? What was it that caused them to break glass and say, this is the time I need to speak publicly? And I think for, for Mullen, it was the fitness question, which is very much in his statement. For Mattis, it is the fact that the military is seen as being on, uh, on one side of this very, uh, very divisive uh, politic, political era we're in. But, you know, that could be. I think that seeing those images, I think, cross everybody's mind. Um, it did look like kind of a palace guard type uh, situation you see in the Middle East. Um, I hate the Middle East analogy, so I don't want to make one. But, um, but it did kind of say, you know, what, where could this potentially go? Even Peggy Noonan uh, had an interesting column where she basically says, how does Trump, end, how does this end? How does this end well? Because <laughs> you know, try, to, try to envision it. It's hard to actually envision it. Um, but this week, did seem, or two weeks ago, it just seemed to be a real inflection point um, in which you had such a groundswell, not only in the country. I mean, it gives you hope, I think, that you know, the antibodies – uh, are kicking in here. The antibodies in one crisis, not in the other one, unfortunately, but are kicking in um, in terms of trying to come out of this era in a better place. And that's what I'm hearing from allies and counterparts around the world. They're kind of hopeful here that out of this very difficult time in the country, we might actually come out of this uh, in a way that we try to get back and live up to the values we're always trying to struggle to live up to. But we'll see. But I think, I think those uh, admirals and former chairman going on the record in the way they did. I think it was important. Whether or not it's lasting, we'll see, but I think it was really important. And I thought it was quite extraordinary as someone who knows these guys. I want to take a moment to thank you all for listening to this podcast and for following us here at the Deep State Radio Network. We are very, very uh, soon going to be reaching the third anniversary of Deep State Radio. And we couldn't have gotten here or grown as we have without the support of all of you, our listeners. And and of course, we depend on you to come back week after week and listen to podcasts like the conversation we're having now. And we're hoping that as we approach this third anniversary, if you have found some value in that, that you'll consider supporting us as a member of the DSR Network. It's simple. You go to the DSRnetwork.com, you click on membership, and you get benefits that will include attendance at our upcoming webinar series, 
listening to the episode without ads, access to our members-only Slack community, exchanges that we participate in and where we can answer your questions, discounts to upcoming live events, discounts to swag purchases. And if you go now and you become a member, you'll also get the DSR face mask, which is a great way to show your support for Deep State Radio and uh, stay healthy and show your respect for the people around you all at the same time. So use the code MEMORIAL at checkout, get the mask, and thank you for your support very, very much. Ryan, did you want to jump in on that point? Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in on that point. I had a different question for Brett, but just exactly what David said. I read a lot of these statements to be um, raising the flag for what might happen with the election. Um, so in Just Security, we published this statement. Um, it's a pretty powerful statement that's now uh, signed by 600 former senior U.S. officials, including around 300 former ambassadors, over 30 generals and admirals. And then, you know, just one line in the statement, it's a reference to the, quote, misuse of the military for political purposes, end quote. And I think that that's what's being talked about here. I think that's another reason that motivated people to come out, because it's a serious concern about the use of emergency powers either to try to suppress the vote uh, in the election with Eliza, uh, which Eliza Goitan, the probably the one of, the, one of, if not the preeminent expert on emergency powers, has written about how there, there's, there are these emergency powers in which if the president says there's a domestic uh, disturbance, civil unrest, I can mm-hmm. do a bunch of things. And now we know this is one of the things that he could potentially do, the 82nd Airborne. And one piece that um, Steve Vladek and I wrote about earlier this week is what most people don't realize is it's actually not that the center of gravity would be the secretary of defense and the chairman of the joint chiefs. It's actually the attorney general because under U.S. domestic policy, that's who would um, be the lead agency and the cabinet member organizing, overseeing the military as used domestically for civil disturbances. That's according to multiple internal U.S. policy documents that are publicly available. So I think that's what that part of it was about um, as well. I know you said you had just a question for Brett, yeah. but can I can I keep on stay on yeah. this topic for just a minute longer? Because um, sure, of course. What what I what's brought to mind by this discussion, both of the statements by uh, senior military and by um, raising the issue of the election and whether this is really about is this about now or is this about hey don't go any further um, in the election now now Vice President Biden. Uh, uh, said, I think on the the Daily Show or something like that, um, just said um, that he expects Trump to refuse to leave office if he is defeated electorally, um, and that he also is uh, fully expects that he would be escorted out of the White House under those circumstances by the military. And that's a pretty strong statement. I mean, both of those are pretty strong statements. I, I, I'm inclined to absolutely agree with the first part of that statement, uh, which is that, that Trump is not going to go gently into that good night, uh, no matter what the electoral result is. Um, but the second part of that statement, I thought, whoa, you know, the military is going to escort Trump out of the White House. At, you know, and, I, and I had the same reaction I, I often have when people say things like that, which is, 
who exactly are we talking about? What what military? Wait, you know, who under with what mechanism? Um, under whose authority? Who gives that order? Who says you know? Who says? Okay, fellas, it's time to cross the Potomac and escort Trump out of the White House. He won't leave um, in a universe in which presumably if Trump is saying, no, I didn't lose, I refuse to leave because I actually won. It's fake news that Biden won, you know, or it's a coup or whatever. Um, he's going to say, and look, um, Bill Barr, my attorney general, just completed a very thorough investigation and discovered that, you know, the Democrats, Hunter Biden, tried to steal the election. We're not going to let that happen. Um, and luckily, I have activated, you know, I've under the Insurrection Act, um, I'm calling in the troops to prevent that pesky Biden clan from from displacing me. Um, and Attorney General Barr says that's the right thing to do. And oh, by the way, the head of Homeland Security says that I'm totally right. And so does the head of the FBI. And they all think I'm completely right. What was your reaction to those those comments from Vice President Biden? And do you think is he right? Do you think he's right that the military would get involved in some way, shape, or form in in a election dispute? And and that's I'm, I'll throw that open to any of you. Everybody's looking a little stunned and dismayed by by these by this question. But Brett, you look least stunned and dismayed. So let me go to you first, then we'll go back to you, Ryan. <laughs> I think no, I think it's a good question for Ryan. I think it's a, <laughs> okay. It's a, but I, look, I think generally, let's keep the military out of this period. <laughs> I think that's the principle that I think we should all be trying to, uh, yeah, trying to rest on. Ryan, now nobody wants to answer this question. Um, no, um, well, I guess just a few quick thoughts. One is I do think we might be talking about low probability but high impact events. So we still need to think about these as potential worst case scenarios, even though they're not necessarily more likely than not. Um, so I think that's one piece. Um, a second piece is um, and as a legal element, uh, if we are to some degree talking about some of these issues with respect to the military, the military also knows that they have to disobey uh, clearly unlawful orders. Um, and so we also had a piece by at Just Security by uh, Gene Fidel. Um, I usually don't plug Just Security pieces like this on the podcast, but um, Go for so it. Gene wrote a piece that included that fact. Mm -hmm. um, so if they were ordered to um, conduct certain actions that would suppress Americans' votes or rights of assembly, things like that, um, that it would bump up against that. Um, and then Gene also put something into his analysis that I hadn't anticipated, which is come, I think the way he put it is something to the effect of come January 20th at 12.01 p.m., the military must respond to the commander-in-chief. So if they deem that commander-in-chief to be the person who was duly elected, that's the end of that. Um, so that's an element, I suppose. And if that's the case, then that might condition how people react um, or act in November and December knowing that. Um, that there's a kind of a game over at a certain point. Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, hard to I mean, think through I mean, these um, extreme situations. It seems like that presumes that there is, in fact, total clarity about the winner, right? I mean, I think if there was a Biden landslide, this is a relatively easy question. But what, what if, what if, what if it's, there's just enough ambiguity that people aren't quite sure, David? So, uh, so Rosa, this is, you know, 
this is the cyber concern, right? Right. Right. Uh, now, what we learned in Georgia uh, on Tuesday was you don't need the Russians to right. screw up. We can your, screw things up all by ourselves. by ourselves. Right. Yes. And this was the classic. It was a really interesting and fascinating uh, moment because we don't see any indication of foreign interference. We see an indication of is in the middle of an election year, they're introducing a new and quite complex system. Mm-hmm. Uh, being uh, run by a bunch of poll watchers who may not be completely of the high-tech generation out here and who were, you know, confused about what you do when cards weren't being read, voter cards weren't being read right, and, you know, a new touchscreen wasn't Is that an ageist statement? It is. It probably would have confused me, I, I'm sure. Uh, but, um, uh, and this is a complicated, a complicated system to which, you just didn't have tech mm-hmm. tech assistance in in each of the areas. But to take us to our um, our broader point here, the risk, of course, is what happens if this is a close election or close in just a few swing states. And uh, you, the Russians don't necessarily need to bring about um, a result for Donald Trump. All they need to do is the equivalent of a perception hack. And it may not be the Russians this time. It may be the Chinese who probably have um, much more reason to throw this into chaos than almost anybody, right? Or others. So um, uh, the the issue here is how does the president react if he's got a reasonable case to be made that you can't call Michigan or you can't call Ohio or something like that? I'm not really that worried that he would turn to the military right away because I think would have the reaction that you just uh, heard from Ryan and Brett. But he may well say this is an illegitimate election, and you see him paving the ground for that just in his public right. statements. Right. Um, okay. Well, let let me go back to you, Ryan. You you had a question for Brett, and I wouldn't let let you ask it before. So go ahead. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess the question that is a segue from what we've been talking about is just, Brett, to hear you think through and talk through the idea of what advice you would give to people who are serving in the administration now about when is the moment to quit? Because uh, you've obviously went through that personally, and uh, it's a, such a tough question, and I know it can be very subjective in different ways, and maybe the decision that you were faced with was different because the circumstances there was in some ways that the president had pulled out the rug completely from under the policy that was being pursued. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's one of the factors that a person considers. But um, when a lot of the last two weeks happened, there were reports by anonymous senior officials in the White House and elsewhere who were expressing uh, great dismay about what's happening with the president um, in the handling of um the protests, for example, and then others on Twitter, for example, said, oh, then, then resign. <laughs> but it's obviously much more complicated than that. There's a lot of trade-offs in the mix. So just to hear how you would advise folks to think through that, especially because um, part of the listeners of the audience for this podcast are, in fact, those people. Yeah, thanks. I think I've been asked this before. I put it this way. First, it is the most personal decision. So therefore, I... Um, I'd be very reticent to give any sort of guidance or any of that very personal decision. Um, and in fact, I had always had the principle, um, one I learned from Ryan Crocker, you know, you don't resign. I mean, Ryan Crocker very famously wrote a memo about if we do the Iraq war, uh, 
the kind of the, the perfect storm. And then he was appointed years later to try to go in and try to fix it. Right. So, um, and resigning is kind of, uh, you're basically abandoning the field. Um, I kind of believed in that. I mean, you're always, you, you, you lose policy debates all the time and you're, when you're doing this type of work, you have to expect it. Um, but a couple of things, number one, if you're in a position where you have to publicly advocate for the Trump administration in any sort of way, that really puts you in a difficult spot because it's almost impossible to be um, a public advocate because you have no idea what the president's going to say. I actually had this experience again, about a year in or so I was on stage uh, somewhere, I think with general Votel talking about um, our strategy against ISIS, very much on our talking points and going through the whole thing. And uh, Donald Trump was on um, doing a camp, uh, a stump speech somewhere um, saying, we're getting the, getting the hell out of Syria. And like they did, CNN did a split screen with me and Trump. Um, that's just kind of one example. I think today, if you're in the White House and you're thinking about how to defend uh, the Confederate flag, that's a that's a question of, do you really want to be put yourself in that position? Um, just finally, in my own as a diplomat, you have the power of your handshake, right? And my job was to organize this ISIS campaign and the coalition that's in capitals, that's with the fighters on the ground, the Syrian Kurds, the Iraqis, um, sitting across from the Russians. You have the power of your handshake. And so when you're totally undercut, when the president comes out with something that's completely opposite to everything you had been saying to all these people, including many who put their lives on the line, um, that is a point at which I think you can really cannot go forward while keeping your integrity intact and looking in the mirror. Um, so again, it's a very personal uh, decision, very contingent upon the facts, I think. Um, but it's, it's, I, I think anyone has to ask, you know, what, what am I doing day to day? Am I making a difference? Um, do I have to speak publicly? And watch out for what I call, what is called the effectiveness trap, which is a, a, a um, a theme that came out of the kind of Vietnam era, um, which I read about in, in um, uh, George Packer's recent, recent book about Richard Holbrook, which I thought he, he did very effectively. If you're in a position where you know the policy is crazy, or you know that this probably isn't going to work, or you know that we're pursuing a path that is likely not to lead to a good outcome, or we're pursuing a policy that can't possibly succeed. Um, but if you think to yourself, man, but if I wasn't here, it'd be even worse that's when you start to kind of cut corners. And so you just really have to ask yourself every day, what am I doing? Am I making a difference? Um, and could I make more of a difference on the outside? But it just finally, most personal decision anyone can make, very contingent on circumstance. So I, I'm very reticent to give kind of broader guidance than that. David, I want to invite you to toss a question at Brett or Ryan, if you feel like it. Sure. Uh, ask, ask one of them a hard question. A hard question. A hard one. You can't. You can't do that with these no more students. soft. No more softballs. No more, Mister Nice Guy. So, um, uh, to both of you, but I'll start this with Brett because it goes to the very personal um, decision. So we have seen the following evolution: people joining the administration, saying, "I know the president is who the president is." but I need to be there because it requires the best people around and the most experienced to go save the situation. Then a group of them, starting with you, Brett, not even starting with you, but you, but we saw them during the impeachment hearings. We saw them in many other places, Mattis, others, going step two, which is to say, no, I'm not really doing any good in here, and uh, I really should resign to make the point clear. 
Then we're at phase three, which is Mattis finally breaking his silence, Mullen coming out with the kind of statements that they have before. What is stage four? Is there a stage four? Do they actively join with Biden? Do they um, gather together as a group? Do they try to convince other members of the Trump administration to resign en masse and make similar statements? Uh, because when it happens in dribs and drabs, you know the president's response. I, I don't know Brett McGurk. I only met him 35 times, you know. Uh, or, uh, you know, this is a, a disgruntled former defense secretary. There's always a, a reason for one of them. But what does this group do next, if anything? Or have they just done what they're going to do? And Ryan, I'd be interested in, in your thought about what they should do in your mind. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question that... Um that you know the, the the former four stars all I know debate amongst themselves. So you have the Dempsey model, which is uh, we really should never get involved in this stuff. But even he came out with a statement and said in his own very careful way. And then you have John Allen, who I know believed very strongly in 2016 that uh, what we're seeing from Donald Trump is a threat to the Constitution and spoke at um, Hillary Clinton's convention. So um, I would just expect from Mattis and others that they've kind of had their statement out there and they'll step back a little bit. But you know. Kelly said something interesting. He said, um, we need to think about who we elect, <laughs> which was a pretty direct shot at, uh, at the president for whom he was the chief of staff. And if you believe that and you believe the country's at risk, then, then do you take it a step further and kind of be more active in, in politics? Um, so, David, I don't know. I think uh, you'd have to ask those guys. But, um, but it's a good question. I have found I think some of the most effective voices against Trump are the, are the Republicans um, the Lincoln Project guys and the, uh, who are really just speaking to Republican values. The Republican Party that I grew up in a very long time ago, uh, decades ago, um, about the values that have really been lost. And Mitt Romney marching in that uh, march the other day, those are pretty extraordinary moments. So whether that kind of coalesces into something, um, I think is a really good question heading into the, in the election season. Yeah, I'm not sure I have a better response than that. Um, and especially because we don't know what the next few months are going to bring, but I think their being out in the public square is hugely important. Um, whether or not they would do something like a line with, um, the Biden campaign or something like that, I do think is very risky. And so one of the other letters that was, um, released last week was this letter by 55, um, former senior military leaders, released, quote-unquote, by the Biden campaign, and I thought that was potentially an odd choice on their part um, because it cast it into a very different light. Um, Now, at the same time, there's an upside to it, which is that they are saying um, more specifically, in a sense, that this is about who people decide should be the next president, and these are such extraordinary times. I also think one other piece of it is we're in in such extraordinary times that I would worry less about precedents that are being set. It's not like we need to think about, oh, well, if this happens each time there's a presidential election, it's just the threat to the Republic and the concerns that people have about um, what another four years of this will look like uh, with somebody who's in fact given a mandate after all of the four years that we've been through, if, if he is reelected, um, to suggest that it's an endorsement of the, that slide I think is a um, turning point for the country um, so that it's different than anything that's preceded it and probably every different than anything that'll come in the 
the near foreseeable future. Brett, let me ask you a question about an op-ed that you published with our other absent friend, Corey Shockey, who, who I know would have a lot to say about the civil-military relations issues we've been talking about. Um, but the two of you published an op-ed together uh, a while back, um, arguing that we need to have a kind of ROTC program for, for diplomats. Um, and you're now in a position where you're spending your time talking by, by Zoom, we, we imagine, to lots of young people who maybe have been thinking about careers in government um, or maybe not. Maybe they're deterred by the, the fiasco in the current administration. But, but tell us a little bit about your, your arguments there um, uh, for what, what we need to, you know, looking ahead, let, let's say we should be blessed with a, a different uh, set of leaders in, in a few years, uh, even sooner. Um, what, what do we need to do to reinvigorate the profession of diplomacy? I, yeah, I wrote that with Corey. Um, a couple things happened. I, I left the administration. I'm dealing with students. Um, but also just kind of peering into the future a little bit and the fact that our country is so beset with problems before, you know, COVID and just seeing how decrepit our public health infrastructure was and everything else. Um, but this goes back to the, something I said in the beginning. We're setting all these maximalist foreign policy objectives on everything. With, as our country is falling apart, with a president that isn't engaged in any of this stuff, and as our institutions are eroding. So if we're serious about a challenge like China, um, we need to be serious. We need to kind of go back to those foundational, um, the foundational documents in the, from the Eisenhower administration, from the, the onset of the Cold War, the fact that you know, our, we're strongest where our foreign and our domestic policies meet. And I was just struck by the erosion in the State Department not just people leaving, which is, a com- which is a common story, but especially in Trump world, when you travel around the world to our embassies, our people in our embassies will kind of grab onto you, like, what's going on? <laughs> what are we supposed to be saying? Because there's no uh, coherence. And um, the Chinese are investing in a massive way in their diplomatic corps. And they actually have policy objectives. Who knows? Their budgets aren't very transparent, but they're, they have... Uh, policies that the extent their defense spending goes up, their spending in diplomacy and assistance has to, has to kind of keep pace, right? Um, we don't have that. Uh, the Trump administration every year is trying to slash the budgets of USAID and State Department, even as Congress tries to save it. So I, the, Corey and I are trying to get to a point that um, what can we do to really think differently about this? And if we get out of the, this Trump era, um, how do we reinvest in our institutions? And students out here, I'm at Stanford, so it's, it's obviously a very unique environment, but I have found students, even surrounded by here in Silicon Valley, a real desire to serve and asking, how can I serve? What are, what are the best avenues? Um, so I think kind of opening up those avenues would be in our interest. And there might be a moment here, we'll see how the election goes, but if Biden wins this election, and particularly if it is a, if, if the polls today kind of turn out, who knows, a long time to go, there is a moment for our country to really say, what do we need to invest in for the future? And um, I'm speaking as a former diplomat, but our diplomatic corps is critical. And that's what other countries are doing. And so having on-ramps, like the military does, they invest in professional education, uh, ROTC-type programs. Um, I think those things would be very beneficial and would allow us to keep pace. We are not serious about this great power competition thing unless we are doing things like that. And I don't really see us doing that. Final point, um, alliance building. Alliance building is such a quaint principle (laughs) 
that people kind of, it can bore people when you talk about it. But we're not serious about great power competition as the United States of America if we are not harnessing and maintaining our alliances. That is what gives us comparative advantage over these other countries. Otherwise, it's just a hard power competition. Um, so I know Elizabeth Warren and others kind of put those principles into some of their platforms about uh, reinvesting in the State Department and really kind of having an on-ramp for young people to come in. Um, so I, I, those ideas are out there, and I hope that they gain some traction. You know, it's a sign of what Brett was saying here, that there was almost no reaction when it was leaked out the other day that the president wanted to withdraw 9,000 troops from Germany. You know, out of, at, in fact, think about last week where um, he invites President Putin to come to the G7 where the price of readmission is supposed to be you give up the annexation of Crimea. And then he re- and they announce a reduction of troop levels in Germany who are there, of course, to keep the Russians in check. So, um, you know, if there, was, if there was discussion with the allies on this, uh, I certainly missed it in the course of my coverage. And I saw I, we're, we're almost out of time, um, but actually, Ryan, maybe as a, a final issue of more things that more things that happened while we were all distracted by other Trump shenanigans. Um, President Trump just signed an executive order uh, authorizing all kinds of extremely punitive sanctions uh, aimed at prosecutors and other officials of the International Criminal Court. Um, this is after taking a swing at the WHO and so forth. And, um, uh, you know, this too seems like something that, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of another, another shot across the bow at, at international institutions, uh, also likely to cause further discontent amongst American allies and partners. Um, and Ryan, I wondered if before we close, you had any quick comments or reactions to that news. So, I do. I guess the way I think of it is that it's actually, there's some continuity between the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration, and especially the Obama and Trump administration, in terms of not supporting the ICC investigation of Afghanistan and therefore U.S. troops and CIA activities. So, that's a main, you know, that's a kind of a centrist position and I think the Biden administration might be the same place. But the way that they've gone about it with direct attacks on the staff and the employees of the International Criminal Court and their families um, through seizure of assets and travel bans and things like that. This isn't just an expression of policy concerns. This is a, we're freezing your (laughs) bank account. Oh, yeah. that's That's pretty incredible. And that's why... There was a statement made by former U.S. ambassadors for war crimes Mm -hmm. um, in a a couple, several weeks ago when Pompeo already started down this path saying, not the way we go about doing this. This is actually so counterproductive in many levels as as the tactic Mm -hmm. for if you actually are trying to ensure depoliticize international bodies and things like that and and have people allied with us to try to um, effectuate these goals. So, So I think that we should, should separate those two pieces out, the approach that they're particularly taking. And then the one other item that I would flag that was very disconcerting about this particular executive order is that there's a question mark over it. It appears to also target 
not just the employees and their family members of the ICC, but other foreign nationals who have materially supported the investigations. And that's uh, very worrisome. So I know that today it sent um, ripple effects among human rights organizations and the like who have supported the International Criminal Court's mm-hmm. investigation mm-hmm. of torture in Afghanistan because that looks like material support. Um, and are those people now potentially targeted, even if it doesn't materialize in the government going after them, it's a significant chilling effect. It's just why on earth would you even leave that out there like that? And and based on my conversations with other international criminal law and other people and sources, it looks like that's the most plausible mm-hmm. interpretation mm-hmm. of what the executive order says. And Secretary um, Pompeo, Esper, and Attorney General Barr, in announcing the statement, this position, then left the room without taking any questions. So leaving this out there, um, hopefully um, it's not what we think. And that's why I say question mark. But I do think the most plausible interpretation of that executive order is it's that um, egregious or excessive in, in its reach. Well, we are out of time for this podcast, um, uh, so we're going to stop. Uh, I hope that we will be back very soon with with more. I hope that David will return. David Rothkopf will be located and return to us. Uh, meanwhile, you can check out recent episodes and uh, upcoming episodes on the Deep State Radio Network, and that's thedsrnetwork.com. Um, to those of you who have ordered the very in-demand DSR face masks to protect you, that protect you not only from COVID-19, but also from the, the emanations from Donald Trump, uh, we apologize. We have supply chain breakdowns, but those masks are going out, uh, and you will, we hope, receive them shortly. And if you haven't ordered your DSR mask, uh, we hope you will order one. Thank you for listening. Thank you to David, to Brett, to Ryan for being here today. And we look forward to lots more discussions like this in the future. Brett, and we hope you come back. I'd love to come back. Thanks so much. It was great. All right. Thanks, everybody.